I'm really excited to be here today with Scott Walner. And uh, Scott is a friend of Nolan's, maybe an online friend of Nolan. Yes. Who has been on the channel a couple of times. And uh, Scott had an interesting idea about the word tension. And since I've been doing a deep dive into tension, I thought this would be a great opportunity to talk together. But before we get started, Scott, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your background. Where, where were you born? Where did you grow up? What was that like? How did that get you interested in what you have mm. ended up doing now? And I see lots of books in the background, so I can tell you're a reader. <laughs> Well, this whole this whole wall off this way, so uh -huh. far off into the distance of uh, my my office here. Cool, very cool. Okay, well, why don't you get started with your story? Well, thank thanks for having me, Karen. I'm I'm really excited. Um, I I'm excited as much uh, to talk about tension as to hear you talk about tension too. So I'm <laughs> really hoping to get some back and forth because I I certainly don't have anything figured out. Um. But yeah, let's see. Well, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago um, and spent most of my life there. My family lived in that house for, gosh, by the time we sold it, uh, 26 years, I think my family lived in that house. Um, and I grew up in a, basically the most quintessential suburban environment that I can think of. Um, it was an excellent place to grow up. I went to uh, a Lutheran school for most of my uh, elementary school and starting in middle school. Um, and most of my childhood was focused on athletics. So I was a competitive athlete in any sport that I could find time for, um, mostly focused on uh, gymnastics and some basketball and then a whole lot of soccer. So my whole life was soccer. I wrote essays in kindergarten, plotting out my whole future as a soccer player and professional and national champion and coach. So I was I was one of those kids who had, you know, the soccer posters on my wall. And um, really, uh, every single day for all of my childhood, I was playing soccer um, and got was fortunate to compete at a really, really high level. Um, so in sort of parallel with that, um, I like to think of uh, the formative part of my childhood as being related to puzzles, actually. So my family is really into board games and puzzles. My mom uh, was a librarian and a teacher, and she would uh, send us logic puzzles in the backseat of the car to get us to be quiet. So we didn't have any tablets or um, apps to use, but we had logic puzzles and word books and all of that. And so I just became really accustomed to uh, trying to solve little, little puzzles and problems. And um, eventually I started to focus on school a little bit. Um, I had good success with mathematics and physics. Um, although my focus was sports. So I did, I did very well in school um, and was inspired by a high school physics teacher to go and study physics and mathematics in college. Um, and while I was there, uh, worked for the physics department as a lab proctor and a tutor and worked as a tutor for the math department. Um, 
but I was never really so motivated or engaged with my education. Um, it was sort of routine and uh, doing the assignments and being a very competitive person. I, I did that to the best of my ability, um, but I didn't really have that engagement with um, the intellectual side of things. And I didn't really realize that until later in life when I when I finally clicked into being what I think of as now like a very intellectual person um, and sort of have that uh, that regret a little bit that I didn't engage more um, back when I was in the in the thick of things. Um, but I yeah, I got some degrees in physics and mathematics. Um, I ended up deciding that I wanted to try to be a teacher. And so I got a teaching certificate and spent some years in and out of classrooms. Um, and eventually uh, that led me back to um, academia eventually. Now I'm wondering, gosh, this is where uh, where my, my story goes a little bit off the rails and uh, out into the wilderness. So I don't know how much you want to hear about that. I think it is- Well, the wilderness of- is where all the interesting stuff happens. <laughs> Yeah, that, that that is the interesting part of my journey. Maybe I'll get out of the um, sort of interview mode here and just talk about what I think really made a big difference in my life. Yeah, uh, yeah. So as I said, I was I was focused on becoming a professional soccer player, um, and I played in college, and then I continued to play after college. I played in the sort of lower divisions in the U.S. on some competitive teams, again, sort of pursuing this professional career. I ended up getting a chance to go overseas to Europe uh, to play and was having some some early success, sort of establishing myself, um, working for a contract and a place to make a career out of soccer. Um, and right at the the peak of that. I had come back from actually the uh, Serbia. I was playing with teams there in their first professional division in Serbia. They were interested in me. I came back to the U.S. for a short time and continued to train. And then I had uh, a really catastrophic knee injury. And um, so that knee injury uh, left me immobilized with a full hip to ankle brace uh, for about six months, I wasn't allowed to even flex my knee during that time. Uh, and the physical therapy was incredibly painful. Uh, it took me almost 12 months. I can remember the celebration in the, in the therapist's office after, after almost 12 months, I, I regained 90 degrees of flexion in my knee. So it took me almost a year to bend my knee 90 degrees. Mm. Uh, and during that time, I, went into a very deep and dark place because I can imagine. Yeah. My entire identity and um, all of the work I had done my whole life was leading up to this, this place. And then it was, it was shattered and um, I didn't really know what to do or how to handle it at the time. Um, And how old were you at that point, Scott? Um, let's see, that was in 2013. So I was 25. Yeah. So I had spent about two decades with this sort of sole purpose and identity in mind. Um, and then it was, it was gone and there was no way to regain it. And, um, so I started by 
having a very difficult time. Um, fortunately, I had some good people around me, my family and some really important friends that I do believe um, pulled me through that and out of it. Um, and through that experience, I had a realization that I had to essentially start over. Um, and at first that was really disturbing. Um, but then I became a little bit hopeful. Um, and so when I was bedridden, it's actually when I started to, started to read, um, and the reading just exploded <laughs> once I figured out that reading was really interesting, um, and engaging and so what was the first book that caught your caught fire for you okay so i can talk a little bit about my sort of intellectual history so it actually started a little bit before the in, the injury the first time i got into reading was uh in in college i took this really incredible course it was at our school we called it a learning community so it was a few courses sort of bundled together um so we took a G, it was called environmental science and environmental literature. So we took some geology and earth science. We had a practical project in our community that we had to do, which was sort of ecological in nature. Mm -hmm. And then we read environmental literature. And so I got started reading with like Thoreau and... Mm. Wendell Berry and Thomas Berry and Brian Swim and Paul Kingsnorth and mm -hmm. um, Bill Plotkin. And so my my now, were those assigned by your professor or were those things that you just were. found on your own? They were assigned. And I had this if it wasn't wow. for the professor, I would never have really given this a shot. But um, we had this really awesome, cool professor um, who we would see around campus and he would invite us out to the farm. We would do farm work as a part of the course. And him and I got really close. We actually built a shed on our campus as a part of my project. And he was, um, he was an editor for Wendell Berry. And so he was just incredibly knowledgeable, so sharp and smart. And he just opened us all up to this perspective. You know, he, um, he led us to, if you're familiar with Robinson uh, Jeffers, the poet. Yes. Now that, yeah, well, I, I remember that from a poetry class that I had to take in college, but I don't remember his work. Yeah, that that's okay. So, so poetry like Robinson Jeffers and uh, Rainier Maria Rilke, you know, that really opened my eyes and what it sent me into was a sort of um, the realm of depth eco-psychology at the time. So it was a mixture of sort of ecological perspectives, but also also this depth psychology, which sent me into Jung. And then once I once I got opened up to Jung, just following the references and citations and reading about Jung and reading about Rilke and things like that, I just I couldn't stop at that point. Um, and so the depth psychology and psychology sort of took me into philosophy and I started reading some uh, Spinoza and Whitehead and Plato and then from philosophy got interested in philosophy of mind and then got really interested in perception um, and was just reading uh, ravenously while I lived out in the woods and worked on a farm. So I would- Now this is before or after the injury? 
this is now this is after okay <laughs> so, okay okay so you're living out in the woods doing the Thoreau thing exactly exactly <laughs> yep trying to simplify trying to simplify my life i gave it all up i said i'm gonna go work on a, a mushroom farm where i'm making compost every day um and then i go home and i just read i had a small little studio uh apartment a studio apartment single room to myself and i would read in the morning before going to the farm i'd go to the farm i'd come home and i'd read and write and uh experiment with some art and um yeah just spent the better part of uh two years just doing that every day every day and reading a ton um so yeah eventually um my interest became very serious i'm you know the type of person that likes to believe that i can figure things out and figure out the deep problems and you know started reading you know, Hofstadter and Dennett and Searle and all of these, you know, great thinkers that put out these questions, which are just, um, you know, infinitely explorable. And um, eventually I decided to get out of my single room, out of my own head and try to test the waters in grad school. And I found myself in the psychology department at the University of Oregon. Um, and so I was in their Institute of Neuroscience and got to work in a couple of different labs where I was a part of a number of interesting experiments um, and studies and um, had a really excellent experience up until COVID and then COVID sort of uh, shut everything down and it sort of extinguished my, my experience and my, my fire to uh, try to work towards a PhD. Um, so so, now, so I'm going to poke around a little bit. Sure. Was that extinguishing because of uh, being isolated? It affected you emotionally? I, most definitely. Um, I had a, while at the University of Oregon, I had such an enriching experience. I was, um, I was an assistant coach for the women's soccer team. So I was involved in the athletics department. Like I said, I sort of found myself in multiple different labs with at different advisors. Um, and I loved being on campus. I was always the first person on campus in the morning and would go to the fitness center and, you know, had friends and enjoyed going to classes. And so, yeah, just with everything shut down, um, and nothing to do and, uh, no end in sight. That was kind of the hard part for me was not understanding why, things were being controlled in the way that they were and sort of no explanation and no timeline for how do we get out of this. And so, yeah, eventually I sort of just um, got sadder and sadder and more disappointed and decided that I needed to, at least for a time, come back to be with my family. Um, so I came back to the Midwest many people were still sort of operating in a virtual way with school. And so I did that for, a little bit. Um, and when I came home, I met someone and have now started a family. So that sort of decision to come home and set aside the academics and my particular mindset of um, what I thought I would try to accomplish in academia um, just sort of fell away and dissolved. And what emerged was the importance of, of my family. Um, 
and a desire to actually have my own family. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I spent a lot of my adult life sort of going off on my own and being independent, including, like I said, going and living in Europe. Um, I actually lived on a tiny island off the coast of Senegal for a while. Ah. (laughs) Yep, there's many stories I could tell there. Um, Going off into the woods by myself, going to live in Queens in New York City, and um, all with this sort of dogged individual pursuit and belief in myself um, and just kind of following my own heart. And through all of that sort of led me to the end where I realized all of those pursuits were never fulfilled. The feeling of sort of incompleteness and emptiness was just constantly there cycling through every time I tried something new. It just still remained after a while. And and I realized that there was really only one thing that I had that was important and it was my family. And so I was just driven to to be back with them. I'm guessing though that having had that all of those um <clears throat> independent pursuits might have created some challenges for you in in marriage <laughs> kind of um putting that together with some of the challenges that happen with trying to put your life together with another person who typically is their own person and you're your own person <laughs> so so Absolutely. how long have you been married now so uh we're actually we've only been married coming up on two years okay so well, i can see the joy on your face i mean i i can see that you're you're happy for the decision that you've made oh. to go this direction <laughs> oh absolutely it it really you know some of the worst things that have happened to me it, in my own mind at the time they were the worst things that happened to me uh ended up pushing me in a direction that i'm so thankful for now. Like I said, the sort of return to my family and now beginning a family and having some children is just the most amazing thing. And I'm, I'm glad it happened because for a while I was explicit about, um, not going down that road. I was sort of determined and intentional, um, about leaving that aside so that I could fully embrace my own pursuits. Um, and even, you know, part of uh, some essays that I wrote about grad school was like, look, I'm this type of determined person who doesn't need anything else. And I just want to figure things out and solve problems and be totally dedicated and be one of those special people that, you know, leaves everything aside for their, you know, intellectual pursuits. And and I believed that. Um, And uh, it's just, it's funny how things, things can change when your perspective shifts and something happens and immediately everything is different. You, I know you, you often, you know, reference Jordan Peterson and um, some of the things that he says in that regard really has Um, taken hold with me where one event can sort of change all of your memories and all of your understanding about that aspect of your life. Um, And that's definitely happened to me. Um, So, well, when you're talking about this, this independence and then being drawn back to your family, what popped right up into my head was, um, you know, I had been thinking about tension because of a a deep study I had been doing in Genesis chapter one. Mm -hmm. And when you brought up tension in the comment section, I thought, well, I better go back and look at what it means in terms of physics. 
And so in physics, there is a pulling force, but then there's a restoring force. And it sounds like you were pulling, 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 trying to differentiate yourself from your family and go off and be an individual. But that restoring force was always there pulling back. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. That's one of the reasons that I I like the tension force. You know, I think when we're trying to sort out sort of universals, you know, force is sort of right there as one of the big ones. Um, But I find it hard to really wrap my head around force in general. Um, You know, if we're thinking about fields and, you know, things like that, I, I don't have a good intuition or a sort of like embodied understanding of force at large. But something like tension, which is a particular type of force, just is a little bit more approachable to me. Um, I have some understanding of pulling on strings from both ends or gathering something together and tying it up or the surface tension, you know, in the water or a bubble. Those things I can sort of enter into a little bit more. And yeah, one of the important things about tension, which is different than a lot of the other forces, is it's a sort of um, it's an implicit two way force, Mm -hmm. right? Not all forces are like that, in my opinion, where there are sort of competing uh, forces, even within a single, a single object. So yeah, I no, like that. Because aspect. there has to be the other side of the force for tension to occur. Exactly. Exactly. There is well, no. Actually, what's really interesting is that the opposite of tension is compression. <clears throat> right. And in both of those, there has to be a competing force. Exactly. If right? there's no on the other side you're just pushing along yeah yeah Yeah. you can have a string that's just laying there on the ground you can pull it there's no tension there you can try to push that string there's there's no tension there right yeah yeah very little i think there are a lot of those sort of equal and opposite force relationships that are out there um but so something like pressure right again there's the pressure let's say of you know the gas on the inside of the container and then there's the pressure of the external environment pushing on the other side of the barrier. Um, But the internal and external are separate. And so there's sort of this equal and opposite uh, relationship of forces between uh, two different things, whereas tension sometimes can be sort of equal and opposite within uh, the same string or spring or something like Mm -hmm. that. It's... uh, well, yeah, so let, can I show you what I was looking at in, in the scriptures? And uh, maybe we can use that as a bouncing off point, because I think there's a really interesting relationship here. Um, sure. I'm going to share screen. And um, let's see. Yeah, maybe I want to go into the actual. Can you see this now? Yep. Genesis 1.8. So maybe we'll go back to Genesis 1-7. And when you go to interlinear with the Hebrew, you have to read from right to left because that's the way the Hebrew is written. So we're going to start over here on the right. So God made the firmament and he divided the waters between those that were under the firmament and the waters that were above the firmament. And it was so 
Interesting. Now, one thing I don't mean to derail us, what I'm seeing on my page, I saw your cursor. I see some notes that you took, a small tension physics. Uh, oh, so we're, you're not seeing the, okay, sorry. I'm not sorry, seeing sorry, sorry. The, the past. Yeah, so I got I to gotta go back and do something different then. Sorry about that. Um, let's go here, share that page. That's probably better, right? Oh, yes. Okay, now I see Genesis. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I always trying to figure out how to use <laughs> share okay. screens. So God made the firmament and he divided the waters between those that were under the firmament and the waters that were above the firmament. And it was so hmm. now Genesis one, eight, and God called the firmament sky. And there was evening and morning the second day. We'll go to one nine. And God said, let the waters be gathered together under the heavens into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. So I was reading that and I thought, what does that mean? Let the waters be gathered together. And it seemed like an odd phrase to me. So I looked up. You can click on this. You can go to the word gathered together. You can still see this page, right? Yes. Um, it's Kava at the top there. So mm. in Genesis 1.9, the heavens be gathered into one. Let under the heaven be gathered together in the KJV. It uses this phrase, be gathered together. But if you notice down here, everywhere else that word shows up, it's wait. Interesting. Eagerly waits. I look for Sheol as my home. When I expected good, those who wait, I wait, wait, wait. So I thought, well, that's interesting. So what do we do? We go over here. Kava actually means wait, to wait. Hmm. So down here in the Brown Driver Briggs, it says, wait for, probably comes from the original, twist, stretch, mm -hmm. tension of enduring or waiting. Mm -hmm. A cord. Yes. A strength, also a strand of rope. Endure, remain. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then, interestingly, right at the end here, it says spider's threads. Mm -hmm. Well, so one of the things that's interesting about a spider's thread is that it's one of the strongest, isn't it? One of the strongest um, natural things that there are. Yes, I believe so. I was looking up some uh, tensile strength uh, on <laughs> Wikipedia, some lists of the you know strongest tensile strength, and uh, Spider's Web makes it onto the list. I, I can't remember exactly where it was. I probably have a tab open somewhere. Um, but okay, so let's go back then and. Uh... Yeah, so I, I was also looking up the etymology of tension a little bit um, in the last couple of days since we sort of uh, you know were trying to set up a time to talk about tension. And um, yeah, the root is uh, like Latin, which is tendere, which is to stretch. Mm -hmm. And what I'm thinking about in and terms of- that's where tendon it, comes from in the body. Yeah, yeah. Ex exactly. Um, but it could also, because there's also a tendere in, in terms of like attention or attend. And there's also- oh, cool. <laughs> In, there's intendere in terms of like intention. 
Um, and what I'm thinking about the, the stretching is the sort of like the reaching out. Um, but also with the waiting, it's like stretching out the time, right? It's, um, you know, you're, you're gathering together more time to wait. The patience is a sort of stretching or the tension that you feel is the stretching of time. Um, so yeah, so yeah, that, that's really cool. And, and it also made me think about surface tension. Yes. Um, so, and, um, I did have something I'm hesitating switching screens now because I don't want to mess up my screen share, but let's go on to uh, verse 10 here. And, uh, and God called the dry land earth and the collection of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Well, so, this is a different word, the collection of the waters. This is not the same word as the gathering of the waters. So I thought, well, that's interesting. What does that mean? I looked up the collection of the waters. Here in the in the other translate, in most of the English translations, it still says the gathering of the waters. But it's a different word in Hebrew. Mm. collecting waters blah 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 we come down here to chronicles hope uh. hope for israel the hope of israel its savior the mm. hope of israel the hope of their fathers so something's happening here right so what is this word mikveh that's used for the collection of the waters it means abiding and the definition is a hope and when you come down into the brown driver's rigs, it says, um, a collected, a collected mass, a construct. Um, there was someplace else. Oh, down here in Strong's exhaustive concordance, it says something waited for a confidence a collection of water, a pond, a, you know, like a pond or a collection of men and horses gathering together, hope, linen yarn, or plenty of water, a pool. So this idea of hope and linen yarn. So linen yarn is differentiated from spider's thread. And I thought about that because linen yarn is made up of many threads together. Right. But so the weighting is this one very strong tensile thread, but the linen yarn is this collection of threads mm. that are bound together, like um, a cord of three threads cannot be broken, is what it says in Proverbs. So mm. even though the linen may not be as strong individually as a spider's thread, because it's this union of threads woven together, it's it creates this strength of hope. Yes. So now let's go back to the verse again. We think about this in terms of um, in terms of unity and multiplicity. Mm -hmm. Surface tension is the tendency of. Um, water to want to get to the place of having the least amount of uh, surface area. So all the little droplets of water want to gather together so that there is less surface area. And so there's this bonding. 
Right. And, and that's the idea of the tension of waiting. That's mm. wanting to gather the waters together. And then when that gathering of waters is together and you get this collection, which is abiding or hope is some kind of restful place, I think. And um, he called this collection of waters, he called seas. Um, was there something about water itself that was interesting? I think water is just water. Oh, I know why water got interesting because it starts talking about water as uh, being simultaneously can both be a, a, a kind of a, a pool or a collection like in a cistern, but it can also be a force. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, I just thought that was super interesting. And I thought we might start from there with this idea of tension, surface tension. Sure. Waiting, hoping. How does that work out in other areas of physics? Are there other areas of physics where this idea of tension being um, waiting would would and then the the restoring force the pulling would be the waiting and the restoring force would be the hope that is true that's that's my that's my what i'm going to posit here because so, because one of my favorite verses is um faith is the substance of things hoped for the substance of things hoped for yeah so basically if i if i put it into this terminology faith or union with god i'm going to say that that faith is is the the desired union with god faith is the result of active waiting of that pulling force for a hoped for thing this this place of rest Oh, I know I wanted to mention this about the, he called the water seas and God saw that it was good. The next verse, oh, no, I'm sorry, the previous verse. Um, let the waters be gathered together under the heavens into one place and let the dry land appear. It doesn't say he made the dry land. It right. says the gathering of the waters, let the dry land appear. So the dry land is this place of stability sure. and order. Mm -hmm. And so the gathering of the waters, that dry land, that stability is always there. But you can have chaos in your life that can keep you from seeing that yeah. place of stability and order. So when the waters are gathered together into one place and the dry land appears, then you can see it. Right. Mm. So anyway, that's the last thing I wanted to say about that. So No, that's very true. And it's useful to have chaos gathered together instead of sort of ubiquitous. <laughs> you will drown or you will be treading for a long time in a place that is all water. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing to stand up. You almost, um, you know, you lose, you lose perspective on uh, the usefulness of water, you know, Water maybe is only useful when gathered. <laughs> you know, we need a pool of water to fill our jug at. We, you know, we don't need a jug of water when we're floating in an endless sea. That is not yeah. so. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I also, I, um, when you mention hope, hope is sort of, um, it's a central concept for me when I try to sort out how things are going for myself or for anyone, you know, I, I like to play around with sort of making systems of my own and coming up with jargon and orderings and icons of my own. Um, and, uh, I have one that sort of feels similar to Wolfgang Smith. Um, though I'm not, I have not developed it to the level that he has developed his, his icon, but it is similar, um, in that there is a center and a boundary. I, you, it could be a circle. I'm thinking more of a sphere. I'm thinking sort of cell-like. Um, there's a center of the circle, and then there's a particle that um, moves within the circle, within its boundary. And the particle has the ability to make effects on the boundary of its space. And the way that it does that is by traveling from the center with some energy that it receives from the center out toward the boundary where it can extend or expand the boundary by imparting some of that uh, force that it gathered from the center. Mm -hmm. but what directs the particle towards the boundary is some point outside of the boundary, which I distinguish as hope. So something outside of the boundary is hope and the particle is able to aim at that and is sort of sent off in a trajectory toward the boundary where it reaches out and tries to extend the boundary so that it can, you know, sort of uh, incorporate that uh, bit of hope or whatever comes along with that bit of hope. Yeah. So, so the thing hoped for is out there in front that, that's what I've always thought about with faith is the substance of things hoped for. That thing out in front is drawing you a little bit like when Jordan Peterson talks about, he calls it the phenomenon or the finesse um, that's glimmers. He uses the word glimmer. The glimmers out in front of you is your future calling you forward. Yes. Was a phrase I think he got from Jung. Um which I always thought was a very interesting phrase, your future calling you forward, because that's kind of the way that I picture. Um, so, so God's goodness in love is, is what is always drawing us towards himself. And that drawing is what um, produces all the, the motive force and impulse and change. And, and if we're, if we're headed that direction, then all of that change is good change. But if we get messed up somehow and we get pulled towards a different force or, I mean, towards a different goal, that's when we kind of get messed up. Absolutely. And depending on what happens to us when we reach out for something hopeful, that in, in my sort of system, that impacts how we return to the center again. So I'm imagining, again, this little particle inside the circle or the sphere that's sort of going out to the boundary, returning to the center in a sort of orbit and cyclical manner and making these repeated sort of trajectories out to, to reach beyond itself and 
based on what happens, how it's impacted by the boundary, whether or not it sort of is able to extend or expand the boundary, then it returns with uh, some other trajectory and energy, which lets it return to the center and then gain gain some energy, gain some insight, um, and then make another sort of hopeful reach um, outside of itself. Yeah, I like that. I like that. It it makes me think a little bit of the Banach-Tarski paradox, and um, and also is it the is it the hop vibration that looks like you've seen pictures of the hop vibration? It kind of looks like that, like all these trajectories. <laughs> yeah, in, interweaving. Yeah, toroidal, you know, Mobius strip type. Uh surfaces and fibers and because there's uh, more than one little particle in there i mean all of us are little particles and we're all going different directions yeah and if we're thinking you know if there are um anything like fibers and vibrations hop vibrations or the fiber bundles Mm -hmm. uh, um, fibers and vibrations certainly can be connected to this idea of tension again um, you know, the the tone and timbre and uh, note that is played on a string or a surface is contingent on the tension of that string or surface. Mm-hmm. Well, and <clears throat> there's another little video I want to I want to play a little video clip for you of Ulysses talking about music in that way. But, but before I do that, I wanted to just say this idea of tension on the string. <clears throat> a few years ago, I ran into a video of this old guy talking about this, um, a kind of uh, calculator, the really old calculator from, I don't know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, something like that, where the memory of the calculator, so that because there has to be some sort of memory when you're adding one number to another with, with a machine, the memory was stored in a, a piano string. Mm-hmm. inside the box and that so when the impulse goes down on the key it would start a some sort of a wave or something in the string and that would keep going around the string until that was needed and then it would come back and then actually i mean it, it must have been in the last hundred years because it was some sort of digital project yeah. that it was doing but but this memory was stored in this string which made me think about when Jordan Peterson talks about you cannot twist the fabric of reality and not have it bounce back at you at some time because that twist in the fabric of reality is a tension and then there's going to be that restoring force. Exactly. And it's tension again, it's the sort of natural tension of its memory, of its structure that pulls it back, right? I personally, I mean, we, I could have many conversations about memory, I guess. Um, I think I have a sort of um, idiosyncratic perspective on memory. Um, part of that has to do with uh, the ontology I subscribe to. Part of it has to do with my experience in neuroscience mm-hmm. uh, and uh, doing brain scans and things like that. It sort of jades my uh my view of what memory is and what memory isn't but one of the types of memory that i do um 
like to use is this sort of structural or body memory um, as opposed to memories of stored information or encoding, um, but more along the lines of like Rupert Sheldrake and morphic resonance mm-hmm. is of morphic resonance and that there's a sort of inherent habitual memory in yes. the, the nature of things. The way that they are is a, is a part of you know, their history, you know, I like to think of, uh, you know, memory more as a history, we, we, you know, Bergson is a big influence on me in terms of memory. Um, But yeah, my family knows at this point, they almost are afraid to say the word memory around me. (laughs) Go off on a rant. Don't don't say memory now, you know, well, let's Uh, go off on a rant, because I just had a, a conversation about music which hasn't published yet, but with um, Neil DeGrade of Dirt Poor Robbins and Drew Garrett, who <clears throat> I know through Twitter, his Twitter handle is Drew's Ecology. And, uh, and we were talking about um, how music, how a melody, when, when you're thinking of a melody, you, that melody can be complete in your mind, even though it's just a, just in your mind you know the melody because you've heard it before. But when you start singing the melody, the only way you can actually sing it is if you can remember you you left one note and you've gone to the next note, you have to remember ahead of time what the next note is going to be. So it's a memory, but at the same time, it's a moving forward into the future. So every moment in time is you bring in the past, but you have to remember the future in order to get to that next note. I think we're probably very close on our understandings. Um, and I really appreciate the extension of memory for me, both backwards and forwards mm-hmm. at the same time, and never sort of escaping the backwards and forwards nature of, as you put it, remembering. And that's the big mm-hmm. thing that my family knows is don't say memory, just say remembering. That's because it's remembering, right? Exactly. And yeah. I think of membering as sort of, again, the member of the body, right? Our limbs are sometimes called members. Um, and so bringing that back together, um, you know, in my, in my own way, I think uh, remembering is actually not uh, that special to me. It's another form of imagination. Um, so yeah, when you sing a melody, Um, You have to put that together as you go forward. But in my mind, you're not sort of accessing a memory of the next note as if it's written somewhere um, or as if you're reading it off of a Turing tape. Right. We're not doing that when we sing a melody. We're captured by the song. We know the story of the song. We know the trajectory of the song. Um, when you sing, you don't think now I'm going to sing a C. Now I'm going to sing a B flat. That is a quarter note. Now I'm going to, you know, it's like the way that we speak. We, you know, we don't we don't think about our speaking in that sort of sequential matter uh, manner either. Um, we have a sort of compulsion, and uh, you know, and sometimes we get it wrong too. Uh, so we don't remember exactly right, but yet we're still able to sing and continue on the song. We don't like sing a wrong note and then all of a sudden we sing a different song we still have this context of i'm within this melody i'm within this song um so 
Yeah, I I think um, that that does apply to the way that our sort of cognitive remembering works as well, is that in real time, we're remembering the story, we're bringing it together again, and new, it's not this sort of stored, encoded, access, decoding, recall model that sort of mainstream neuroscience is for the most part still focused on. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think many people speak about memories in that way. I often stop people and sort of get them to think a little bit more clearly about, okay, you're like, I have this memory of my childhood. It's like, well, you don't have a memory of it right now. You're remembering it, but you know, what do you have to sort of verify that it's a memory that is stored and how accurate is it or not? We, we sort of all know that there's um, a lot of problems with thinking about memory in that way. Um, for one, you know, where, where is the room for all of the potential memories that we could have stored and need to access at one time or another? Um, that's why I think of it more like another form of imagining. It's like I'm imagining what it may have been like uh, in the past. And I have this sense that I was there doing this thing. Um, so so let me ask you, have you ever, have you watched any of the videos that I've done on Michael Levin? Have you ever looked at any of his work? Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So you know where he talks about how there's not enough information in the DNA to tell the frog where to build to tell the undifferentiated frog cells where they should build their arm, but they get this, um, maybe it's a song, this bioelectrical signal that tells them where to go and build the arm. And once those cells are tasked, then they're no longer undifferentiated and they become arm cells. So they start building. He calls it executing a subroutine where the subroutine comes from, he's never mentioned, but so they're over there executing the subroutine for this arm. And because frogs are bilateral, both arms have to end up the same size and length. And, and, and he's talking about the mystery of all that. And then he says, the big question for him is how do they know when to stop building? And so I had been thinking a lot about this idea of memory and pattern and habit and somehow those three things must be working together there mm-hmm. um, so that they're remembering kind of like uh, Sheldrake's morphic resonance, although it may not be the same picture that Sheldrake has of morphic resonance, but that there is some sort of, um, there is within each, um, at least within each species, there is a memory of what came before uh, of all your, you know, somebody once said, um, well, you may not have ever met your great grandfather, but his nose is on your face. <laughs> you know, we bear the genetic resemblance. So there's parts of our bodies that are still from our great long distant ancestors. Yes. Absolutely. I wonder if one of the things that I think about in terms of Levin or um, Sheldrake is that there is a pattern, you know, a pattern maybe is the most broad way of thinking about there's a pattern of some sort that has an impact. And when I think about a pattern, um, 
you know, the pattern has the beginning and end already in it. It's the pattern must have the beginning and the end. It's not, you know, like, like Levin is saying, he's not, it's not accessing some information in DNA that it has to then roll out in a sequential fashion. It's just that there is this, you know, bioelectric pattern um, or a cascade of, you know, of patterns, but the, the pattern is there and the pattern has boundaries. It's not this sort of infinite, you know, pattern that just goes on forever and ever. Um, that's maybe why there is always a stopping place is because the pattern, the plan has a stopping place. Um, it doesn't need to know when it's reached the end. It's just that is the end of the pattern. Um, so I don't know if that, if that sticks with you, it's almost a, a, maybe it's too simple. Maybe, maybe I'm thinking too simply about, um, these plans that some organism might have. Um, it's, it's fascinating. It's a great question. Why does it stop? Why does it turn off? Um, and I would just say like, yeah, the pattern is there. It's like a, you know, it's like a stencil. Well, you, can look, you can look at the, the opposing, the opposing force, <laughs> um, cells that don't shut off would be like cancer cells. They don't stop growing. <clears throat> right. And one of the things that he talks about with cancer cells is that they have disconnected themselves from the local communication. Exactly. So basically they've excommunicated themselves is the way I think of it, or they've pulled themselves out of the, the community to go do their own thing. Exactly. And, and then, then there's no boundary. And that's, I think, where the whole boundary comes in is that boundaries, well, you know, you've heard me talk before, boundaries are so essential on oh, everything, yeah. right? So, um, <clears throat> yes, uh, yeah, agreed. Uh, I, I'm also, fo I, I've spent lots of time thinking about boundaries as well. Um, some of my graduate work, we were very interested in the boundaries of perception, um, mm. the boundaries of events. So I was in um, a lab that I worked with an amazing uh, researcher. Her name is Dr. Dare Baldwin. Um, and so she's done lots of developmental psychology research um, on the nature of perception and perception of events. And um, one of the critical aspects well, of her sort of model of perception, but also baked into her um, research paradigms is this idea of event boundaries and how our attention and perception is often modulated by the boundary condition of events. Um, and now, when you're talking about boundary conditions, are you talking about <clears throat> when one event stops and another event begins? Or are you talking about the kind of boundary conditions that are like the boundary between equilibrium and disequilibrium? I would say both, but what we were focused on specifically in, in that uh, research thrust was the boundary between events. Um, yeah. But I see the other side of it that you're that you're mentioning too. this the the boundary of homeostasis um yeah well because when i was thinking about tension again with the gathering and the collecting and all of that thing i was thinking um the the tension is necessary because that all the creativity takes place not in the equilibrium, but in the disequilibrium or in the boundary between the equilibrium and the disequilibrium. Yes. So 
So if you don't have the tension, then then there's no creativity. <laughs> there's no movement. Yeah, yeah, there's no change. I I agree. I I um another story we could go into fractals if you want, but um I designed some studies of my own on the perception of fractals, um, fractal images. And um, one of the big concepts that I was interested in was the difference between symmetry and asymmetry. Um, and again, this sort of asymmetrical nature, or like you said, not being at homeostasis, but the sort of constant movement in and out. Um, or again, if you're exploring an object, let's say, this sort of constant re- assessing is what gives you more understanding a static unchanging perception or a static unchanging state doesn't allow for anything um i think that change and flow are fundamental to the universe so i think anytime we uh talk about things in terms of static states or discrete natures um those are abstractions. They they are often useful abstractions. They're very useful in computation and engineering. But I am of the belief that um, that there's a sort of theory of process and everything is in process. And so the, the asymmetries and the differences are what allow for change and evolution and um and all of that. So yes, the the tension is completely necessary. And another reason that I like tension is that, um, you know, we were talking about surfaces and strings and springs, you know, all of these sort of topological or geometrical concepts, which we see out there in the physical world. Tension is a part of the sort of uh, constraints on causality of that thing, right? The way the object like the cell interacts with its environment is specific to the forces of tension in its boundary of, of its membrane of its cell wall um, or of, you know, again, the tension that's pulling it uh, towards another object or um, things like that. The surface tension uh, is, is contained within the thing itself. Whereas some of these other forces that we talk about are sort of, you know, external to the thing, whereas a tension force seems like it's sort of baked into, you know, the physicality, um, if we want to just say physicality of of things. The tension is in there right from the get. And I, and I think it reveals the the relational nature of a thing, even even within a thing. Um, <clears throat> so when you've mentioned tension on your um, in your comment, I was trying to think, how could I approach this? Because I'm not a scientist. So I have to think of actual examples of things in my own life. And I have a plant that has, instead of growing a center core and then some branches off of it, it started out with two branches. Hmm. And it's getting bigger and bigger. So the two branches are getting bigger and bigger and getting further and further apart. So at a certain point, I thought if I let it keep going, one of those branches is going to break the window and go right out the window. So so I tied a string around the two branches to try to bring them together like this. But the, And at, at first, there wasn't very much tension on that string because I didn't want to damage the plant. But as it grows, it's 
creating more tension within itself right now. So the relational tension between that string and the branches of the plant are changing over time as the, as the, as the plant grows. And I mean, maybe that's a picture of what happens in marriage. <laughs> now we have this boundary in marriage of two people. Um, and at first the tension is not that great when you first get together, but then as you each keep growing independently, individually, it puts more and more and more pressure on that, on that boundary string. And so I think that's where one of the things you have to learn in marriage is to let that tension be the creative force in the, in the union, rather than being the thing that pulls you apart. Yes. Yes. And, and accepting that, yeah, tension is a part of the picture and you don't ever get rid of tension. You know, maybe there's some sort of despair, like, there's this constant tension, no matter what you do, there's, you know, in any relationship, um, you know, there's tension among, you know, friends and siblings and, um, you know, children and parents and yes, and spouses and, and everything and um, a sort of acceptance of, of tension. And yeah, how do we take advantage of tension? Um, how do we, you know, let it bend and not break sort of idea. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Schmachtenberger right now, mm -hmm. where he brings in some of these ornate uh, Huygens. I don't know if you've seen any of- Is any that of the cozy? Them. Is that the cozy word? Um, I don't know about that. Um, Nate has this idea of like the, the super organism. He's had a number of conversations with uh -huh. Schmachtenberger. He's in the sort of- uh, ecological social uh sphere of uh -huh. sorting out a better future you know the sort of like meta modern um future idea but you said huygens Hoy yeah nate huygens i feel like it's oh that's his name i thought you were saying meta. i Age thought you were saying the word huygens because there's this word i think it's maybe like hoigy or higgy or something that means coziness it's some sort of and I so see. I thought you were using a word and not a name. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. I don't know how to say it. H-U-Y-G-E-N-S. Okay. That's his name. Nate. Okay. Um, and what, yeah. what are his ideas? Well, no, they, it, they just talk about this sort of like bend, break, bend, not break mentality. And mm -hmm. like how do we change some of the major social trends, you know, economic um, trends, environmental trends, that we see um, trying to actually solve those problems on a global scale is really difficult. Um, and many of our systems are under a lot of tension or under a lot of stress or strain. Um, and how do we allow for that bend? We have to allow for some bend in order to continue on and make change, but without breaking the entire system completely. Um, well, I mean, my, my own theory is that part of the reason we can't solve those problems is that we're not we're not looking far enough down. We're not going far enough back to see where the problem began. Because oh, we're, we're reluctant to look at the history because there's so many snakes buried in the history. And so we won't go far enough back to the beginning. And like one of my favorite hobby horses is the, um, the, the mess that we have of health insurance in the United States. The reason yeah. we can't solve that problem is that they keep poking around the edges and putting band-aids on the symptoms, but you have to go back to where the problem started, which is many, 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 many decades ago. 
then if you mm -hmm. look at where the problem started, you might be able to come up with a solution, but we will never find a solution the way we're doing it now. And no, I okay. think it's true with all those problems. Oh, for sure. Education is a big one. I think about too, having been, you know, a teacher in high schools, and middle school, um, and working a lot with young people and now having kids uh, in a modern world where I think about, you know, my one-year-old daughter's future and what is the right path for her and what is the right path for us as parents to, to guide her. It's a, it's a, it's a little bit scary and confusing these days compared to, you know, when I grew up in the nineties where it was a little bit more straightforward or it's felt straightforward. Um, yeah, I think some of these issues, I almost want to bring back, um, like Levin and the difference between, a a well-functioning organism and cancer and thinking about, you know, we don't operate as a well-functioning organism as a society. Mm -hmm. We're more like all our own little cancer clusters. <laughs> you know? And we don't have the context of the larger organism. And none of us know when to stop, you know, just like the cancer cells. We don't have that complete pattern of like, this is enough. This is my role in the organism. Um, our society is just too big, too fast, too strong, you know, um, well, so I think that's exactly why the community is so important, though, because you take all of these disparate, separate little particles bouncing around doing our own thing. And if you weave them together into a community, then each person has to learn to to submit to something, even if they're just submitting to the, the place of, OK, if I'm going to be part of this community, I have to humble myself enough to at least realize that. I'm not the only person in the world and maybe other people do have some ideas. And even if people are kind of irritating, you know, we can live together in community and appreciate each other's strengths. And it, you learn all that when you're in community, which you can't learn when you're off by yourself in the woods. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, and what's a little bit sad is that I think we could all get away with doing a lot less and getting a lot more out of it if only we would band together. <laughs> you know, uh, a one-man band has a really difficult job. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think he can really flourish in his drum beating or his accordion playing or, you know, cymbal crashing when he has to do all of them at the same time. You know, if he just could play the harmonica and have other people you know, play the drums and play the cymbals and play the accordion, he could flourish in his harmonica playing. But when you're trying to do it all, everything is sort of, um, well, I think we all have some imagery of a one man band in our head. It's pretty yeah. chaotic. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. frantic. It's pretty, you know, overwhelming to think about being a one man band. And I, but I think that's kind of the way that we approach our lives in a lot of ways. Um, as young people, we're sort of you know, pushed a message of like hyper productivity and really aspiring for unique greatness, which is good within reason, but when sort of taken to the extreme and without some sort of temperance, I guess, to the other side of, of community. Um, yeah, that's the reason why we have a lot of really individually successful people and a lot of people who get sort of left behind or fall off. Um, and not a whole lot of middle ground of communities that just take it easy. They just, you know, they just take it easy. And I, I do 
what what's great is that I have some of this experience. So I'm not just speaking theoretically here. Um, so fortunate. I mentioned I lived in, um, so I lived in this country called Cabo Verde or Cape Verde. It's a part of the um, Macronesian islands. So like the Canary Islands. And if you continue to go south from the Canaries, which are like off the west coast of Europe and then the northwestern coast of Africa, there's a group of small islands, 10 islands called Cabo Verde. Um, and while living there uh, with a childhood friend of mine, you know, we lived in communities that did not have running water or central electricity or central plumbing, um, you know, in sort of villages of uh, 100 or 200 people, uh, mostly subsistence farming. And we were we were just fine. And I can say for myself, it is the most content I've ever been in my whole life was having a backpack and a concrete room with a tin roof to sleep in at night. And my friends and family of our community just taking care of the place. We were, we were engaged in some ecological preservation work and, um, my friend and I did some sort of community education and um, sort of philanthropic uh, projects that we we engaged with, but we had so little and we got so much out of each day um, just because we were there with other people and we all had a sort of common cause and a common place and we couldn't avoid seeing each other, you know, in the suburbs, you can get in your house and then get in your car and go to work and then get in your car and come back home, home to your own house and never really engage with families in your neighborhood even. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's no wonder that we all are so individual, individualistic and, and tired <laughs> and, and exactly. And one man banding the whole thing all, all the way, yeah. which is, can be exhausting. Well, so I have to ask, since you were a soccer player, have you watched any Ted Lasso? I haven't. A couple of people have mentioned that to me. Um, they've they've also, I, if I had context, they're like, you're my this character from the show. One of my, uh, <laughs> my uh, when I was working at the high school, the athletic director where I was coaching soccer, he was like, you're my this character. It's so it's amazing. But um, no, I haven't well, seen. Well, <laughs> full disclosure, it's very profane. I mean. <laughs> they use the F word in place of the word very <laughs> all the time. So, I mean, you know, as many times as you'd use the word very, they're using the F word. So, so from that standpoint, it, it was a little bit hard for me to get past that because I don't live in that world where people talk that way. Sure. But um, in terms of telling a story about what it takes to build a community, mm. it is a beautiful picture. And the the uh, narrative arc of the three seasons deals with this whole thing of indi individuality and then how if you go too far in that direction, you can rip your life apart. But if you if you're willing to be part of a community, how things can work out so beautifully and create this environment of love and trust. And uh, yeah, it's a very interesting show from that perspective, I think and immensely funny. That's awesome. I'm, I, whenever I think about community, um, I'm actually brought back to, um, again, some of that, uh, 
we mentioned that literature that sort of opened me up that ecological um literature and there's an author his name is daniel quinn he wrote the book ishmael if you've ever heard about that series ishmael and my ishmael wonderful wonderful stories i i would highly recommend reading the book ishmael so these are um fiction or non-fiction these are fiction oh mm -hmm. wonderful yeah yeah i would it's uh it's like one of these books that I think every middle schooler or high schooler should read. Um and every adult that hasn't read it should also also read it. Uh -huh. Um he has this uh, another book which is um more non uh nonfiction. It's a sort of prescriptive book for society has some um social commentary and he uh gives the analogy of creating a community that is like a traveling circus um and so everyone is bringing something unique to the to the group and mm -hmm. their uniqueness is serving the success of the entire group um, yeah that's a beautiful and, image and you you live together you share you share the you know, I'm imagining uh, sort of the the train cars of the traveling circus. Mm -hmm. um, you share all of that, but you also share in the process of setting up your circus, you know, setting up the tent and welcoming the people and putting on a performance together that sort of serves an even larger community if possible. Um, and you share the struggles of. Um... Yep. And, not, and not, maybe not having enough resource and the struggles of, you know, interpersonal tensions and all of that. And that you can get by on that, that you can get by, you know, living, living in a traveling circus and that you don't need a huge mansion and an SUV, um, you know, in order to get, get what you want um, that you can you just need a house big enough to carry all your books. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly um yeah we joke that um this room that we're in we're we have like a split level house and so we're on the second second floor here with all with all of these books all around this room and we are uh slightly nervous we're like is this room just gonna have to fall right through the floor at some point um that is really how many books well, i we wanted have. to go back to what you were saying before about um <clears throat> I can't remember what the context was, but what what brought what came to my mind was this conversation I had with Ulysses about music. And we were talking about marriage as being kind of a fundamental force in the universe <clears throat> that, you know, the opposing forces that come together, but where that's where all the creativity takes place. And that 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 scales all the way down from very, very fundamental particles all the way up to through humanity and up into the larger universe. Um, and he was saying, well, maybe that's why a band, four or five guys in a band never lasts, never stays together because you have these four or five people, each with their own personality. Nobody's really in charge. And over time, the tensions just become too great and they break apart because whenever you're going to have a group, like if you're going to have a group like that in a marriage uh, paradigm you have a husband and wife and then you have children so each one kind of has a role in the family and that that creates a space where there there's one person that is at least 51 percent 
So there's one person who can make the final decision, which in my paradigm would be the husband, although there should always be um, information from both of them coming into the process of decision-making, but somebody at the final, at the end of the, the end of the day, somebody has got to make a decision. You can't have an equal partnership. And, um, and then you have the children. So we can think of community that way. Any community has to stack up in some kind of a hierarchy so that there's somebody who takes ultimate responsibility, but also comes back down to the bottom and helps lift up everybody that's at the bottom. Sure. Um, just thinking about it sort of geometrically, um, as an analogy, you can't create any height or depth without stacking up on top of each other. If you're all just coming and putting your little block on the ground, you just are all staying on the ground level. Somebody has to be at the bottom. Somebody has to allow for the next block to be placed on top of them. Um, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing the circus people building their pyramids, right? <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Somebody's at the bottom of the, uh, of the pyramid. And, and generally, um, here's a good example. Um, I live in Southern Wisconsin now. And so we're in Lake, we're in Lake country up here. And um, right around the corner, we have a nationally renowned water ski team. So we get to see right over here in our neighborhood, pyramids of people water skiing around the lake. They put on shows twice a week. And wow. who do you think is at the bottom of the pyramid? The biggest, strongest, most experienced <laughs> skiers. Yeah. They take their position at the bottom. And they do that usually after having experienced, you know, the chaos of being at the top you know, but they're the sort of, um, you know, I don't want to say the tribute, but, you know, these little, some of the little kids who get up on the very top of the pyramid, you know, they have this exalted place sort of, but they're the most fragile, right? Mm -hmm. But only because they're small and light and nimble and can climb up all of the other people, they're sort of afforded that position at the top, you know, and um, being a good base must have some understanding of having been through that, you know, position at the top. And so um, it's an interesting way to think about these, these hierarchies. Yeah, really. Yeah. And so, and, and the, the people at the bottom, the strong experienced water skiers at the bottom are also sacrificing because I'm sure that when you're at the top, there's an exhilaration like no other, right? But at the bottom, you have the exhilaration of knowing that you're serving the greater cause and responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah that, that's, that is fantastic. Well, we only have a few minutes before we before we end. I want to share screen and show this little clip from uh, Ulysses because I thought it was just so good. Um, I hope that I can. I hope I can do this with my share screen and end up with something. So let's see. We have a video screen right here. Now, can you see the... Um, can I you see the YouTube. His song yes. calls my soul to come home, Ulysses. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Very good. I'm just going to play about three minutes of this. Uh, Hazrat Khan, he's a Sufi writer. Can you hear it? Um, yes. Drew's read some of him too. I'd like to know what he's got to say about it. Um, 
he he wrote a, a there's a book it's a series of his writings or something it's called music of life and he's got a really keen way of explaining how it's all music dante does this too dante mm. does it too um there's a place in dante where he's asking maybe virgil or somebody like um he's in like a paradise place uh, it's not in the third book of divine comedy but it's it's in the second book but somehow they f they end up being in a paradise place and he actually says like uh how can this be kind of a thing um don't expect a pajol level of <laughs> analysis here. I'm just a dude reading Dante, you know. But it says kind of things move. The, the whole world moves. It's animated. Mm -hmm. And it more or less as it moves, it rubs up against the, the place where God lives. Sort of like that. And that makes a sound. So, and if you think about it, just like in terms of friction, every friction makes a sound. Every movement is a sound. That's what sound is. It's movement. So it's mm -hmm. animation. It's life. Mm -hmm. Everything that is animated, which is if you're a God person, that's everything, it makes a sound. It's it's that's what it is it is sound <laughs> right mm -hmm. so it's more like this is where we live it's the music it's a song right and in a way literally like actually not oh this is a poetic way of putting it it's it's animated so it it sings a song So I just wondered what you thought about that. Do you see a connection between friction and tension? Oh, definitely. I, you know, um, my interest in tension also extends to pressure and friction. I think there can be sort of a similar analysis in these fundamental forces. Again, you know, remember for me, force in general is like over my head, cannot, cannot understand what a force is in general, but I can understand what tension or pressure or friction is. Um, and so absolutely. And the, the thoughts of um, things being musical, um, this just reminds me, you know, of my belief in others that there must be a theory of process, that it is changing. It's not static. Um, and so yeah, my some of my thoughts about how how memory works and or how remembering works. Um, music is the great analogy, and Bergson. You know, maybe another time we'll talk about Bergson, but Bergson really um, utilized heavily the analogy of music in trying to understand the way that we go about our existence and our living. Um, so, so is part of the reason that force goes over your head um i mean because gravity is supposedly a force right and and they all say what is even the physicists don't even really know what gravity is i mean they know how to calculate it but they don't they don't know what it is fundamentally 
Yeah, actually, there are no what is questions in physics, or at least that there shouldn't be. Um, oh, that's a philo philosophical question. Is that a <laughs> yeah. philosophical question? Like the what is? It's a question about the nature of things, whereas physics is the study of the patterns and regularities and how we can predict the patterns and regularities and coming up with um, abstract representations of patterns and regularities, but it's not making any sort of uh, qualitative statements about ontology um, in, well, in well, physics, at least we couldn't. And well, anyone so, who does that, I start to really, really, oh. <laughs> Chris Fields is like pushing me to the edge. I think I want to believe him so much, um, but others like, you know, Max Tegmark, and I love, I love these people. They, they have so many wonderful, smart, intelligent things to say, much more intelligent to me, but, you know, I, I'm not going to go as far as saying that the universe is mathematics or that the universe is computation. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not saying that I'm right, but I don't go that direction personally. Uh -huh. um, well, I was going to ask about gravity. Um, <clears throat> when, when I was looking at Wikipedia about uh, tension and I was talking about the pulling force and the restoring force, um, <clears throat> They act a certain way when you're when you're pulling on a rod, you know. You have you have tension on either end of the rod pulling, and then the restoring force would be in the rod itself, kind of pulling back, trying to maintain that, um, <clears throat> trying to maintain itself. Um, but then it, when it talked about like a, with a pendulum, you pull the pendulum back and you let it fall, and it goes back and forth like this. The pulling force <clears throat> is is that that the tension that's taking place on the rod as it's moving down through these, this arc, but the restoring force is the gravity that's at the bottom. So that when it's, when it's at rest, <clears throat> it's at the bottom, it's just hanging there. And that, that gravity is the restoring force. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was kind of an interesting thought about gravity being a restoring force. Yeah. Or as a potential, right? So the, the restoring <laughs> force, the way that I think about gravity in terms of sort of energetics is that um, as something uh, travels up away from the center of mass or in the opposite direction of gravity, it's gaining potential energy. That's sort of one of the sort of textbook um, examples of energy in physics is this interchange between potential energy and uh, kinetic energy. So you think about the pendulum and when you pull it up, it's gaining potential energy as you move it through, you're putting work into the system to gain energy against gravity. And that's potential energy until it's released. And then the potential starts to uh, be translated into kinetic energy. And that's as such a beautiful explanation. I've wondered about that relationship for the longest time. Yeah. You've really opened up the world for me. Yeah, you could talk about these sort of levels of potential energy and kinetic energy, you know, as a roller coaster goes on its track is another sort of, you know, mental image that as the track click, 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 you know, it's gaining its potential energy as as something does the work against gravity. Um, and then that potential energy is released as it begins to move and pick up speed and accelerate down in the direction of gravity. Um 
So yeah, whether gravity is a pulling force or not, I, I think probably many modern physics, I don't want to, I don't like stepping out on a limb like this, but I think most modern physicists would not um, think about gravity as a yeah. pull. Force. I mean, they that would, was what surprised me because I know they, they think more of gravity being like this. Curvature. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and sense, yes. So speaking of wrapping your head around something, when you think about gravity that way as, as this curvature, and but then you try to imagine the planets in their rotation and revolutions and with this whatever this thing is that the planets are supposed to be weighting down there's got to be it's not just one of those things because when the planets are all moving and there's got to be many of these things right all woven together somehow i mean i try to wrap my head around that picture i just can't get there i i can't get there either i think many people probably really can't um it's some of these you know uh <laughs> these sort of paradoxical dead ends in physics are sort of what what actually pushed me out of physics you know i was a, you know really kind of into physics and you know want to get a physics degree and then when i took my final you know modern physics class and we learned about quantum mechanics and we learned about the wave equation and and then we learned to calculate psi the Schrodinger's wave equation. And, and I was like, Oh my gosh, the wave!" And then we did it. And I'm like, wait, I'm just punching in a couple of numbers on my calculator and then that's it. So, and, and that's as far as it goes. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I became really sort of disillusioned by it all. When I reached the sort of not the final stages of physics, I wasn't a graduate student in physics or anything like that. Um, but when I sort of found out what is done, with, you know, with quantum physics, I was just sort of like, huh, okay, uh, this is just another math problem here. You know, I'm not really finding out what's going on. Um, so yeah, that's a difficult one. Gravity is is a difficult thing to um, to wrap your head around. Yeah, and even, you know, thinking about uh, what do you think about what's out there? There are many different positions that you can take about what's out there. You know, we don't have that clear either or whether the out there is actually there, or some people think it's in here, or it's in the universal yeah. mind, or yeah. it's physical, or it's not, it's corporeal, it's, you know, um, I, I, I love Wolfgang's, uh, Smith's, you know, explanation of the corporeal and the eternal, mm -hmm. and, and I have a little system of my own that sort of fits into the, uh, uh, body, my, uh, spirit and soul sort of, uh, categories, um, well, so and, the bottom line is there's still lots of mysteries and puzzles and you love puzzles. Yeah. So, so maybe sometime the next time you're thinking about another one of these puzzles, you can let me know and we'll have another conversation. That sounds great. Yeah. So this has been really, really good. I, I do have to go, but um, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a, it's been a wild ride. <laughs> thank you for having me. Like I said, quick to quick to change course. And so that happens in my conversations as well. But thank you for having me and uh, talking to me. I'd, I'd love to talk again. Maybe we can, uh, maybe we can figure some things out. You never know. Wouldn't that be a delight? Solve the puzzles <laughs> of the universe. <laughs> thank you, Scott. All right, have a good have day. Have a great Karen. day. Bye-bye.